Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome to you today. If you're new to our broadcast here at All Nations, as a church family, we have been spending some weeks now in the book of Exodus in our preaching series entitled, Let My People Go. We've seen how how God's mighty arm reached out and swept aside all the gods of Egypt, gathered up his people, claiming them back and leading them into freedom. We've seen how he positioned himself behind them and before them. I I love that picture. That's one of the endearing images that stays with me from the book of Exodus. We've seen how he revealed himself in the very midst of them as fire and cloud how he dealt definitively with their enemies, whilst at the same time patiently and lovingly listening and responding to their groanings and grumblings. In fact, if we take nothing else from the series of Exodus, we get to take away an unrivaled example of what perfect patience and tolerance really looks like. As someone who can at times fail dismally in both of these areas, I'm totally in awe of a loving and passionate God who demonstrates to us how determined he is to not let his people go. Richard uh, took us into the wilderness with his preach last week. Not literally, of course. It wasn't that bad. On the contrary, it was excellent. And this week, I'm going to take over as your tour guide in the wilderness, taking you back in and right through to the other side as I try to answer the question of why the wilderness? Was the wilderness a punishment? Was it an endurance test to get through and pass? And why did an 11-day journey on foot take 40 years through some of the harshest terrain of the Sinai Peninsula. Often when we think of the word wilderness, we often associate it, don't we, with barrenness, perhaps with isolation, abandonment, a place perhaps of nothingness and inactivity. Or was it, in fact, Israel's wilderness, a perfect place for a workshop, maybe where God could do one of the finest works of restoration in them. In Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar, the Greek root of which, I like to get a little bit of Greek in every now and and again, means speak or word. And I'm guessing there's a clue right there for us as we start out. In some ways we can Read the book of Exodus and indeed through to the book of Joshua as a story of two salvations in a way. The physical salvation of Israel, where the the physical chains of slavery are broken off, its enemies are laid to waste, followed by a far more significant salvation to even that, the salvation of their hearts and their faith. A salvation that can often 
be a far more complicated business. And it's at the threshold of the wilderness we begin to see God's change of purpose from one salvation to the other. Let's read from Exodus 16, starting at verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. This is the manna from heaven. So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. It took only a matter of months at the most to break the spirit and power of Pharaoh, forcing him to watch as the focus of his cruelty were led triumphantly out through the gates of his great city. It took God just weeks to bring a crushed and brutalized people to the edge of a raging sea, open up its waters and separate them permanently from their enemies. However, it was going to take another 40 years in the wilderness workshop to save them from themselves, to bring them, to bring salvation back to their bitter hearts and spirits to deal with their disobedience, idolatry, their own apparent obsession with self-preservation. The new wine of the promised land was perhaps only weeks, if not days away, but the wineskins were not fit for purpose. The rot lay too deep. Though numbering perhaps hundreds of thousands, if not in the millions, of the generation that set out from the wilderness, only a fraction would see the prize of the promised land. This was to be a restoration project that was both loving and brutal. I don't know about most of you, but I'm a bit of a TV channel hopper. I guess with an average of about, I don't know, 40, 400 odd channels to choose from these days. It's no wonder most of our time is spent flicking through the total rubbish masquerading at times as entertainment. However, in my travels up and down the channels, I will always stop at a good restoration program. I love a good restoration program. The repair shop, restoration workshop, money for nothing, and the king of all restoration programs, Car SOS, and the legends that are Dan and Fuzz. Most of you won't have a clue what I'm talking about, but each week, Dan and Fuzz will rescue a classic car from either a, a neglected lockup that's not been open for many years, 
or one hidden under some bush somewhere. And in one episode, they even craned an old car over a house from someone's back garden. Back at the workshop, often what had looked promising at first sight turns out to be an absolute disaster. The only salvageable things left will often be just wheels and axles and a very dodgy looking chassis. Undeterred though, they will then go about the task of meticulously handcrafting it back to life with a new engine, body panels, upholstery, and a brand spanking new paint job. What is most impressive, impressive of all though is that the two of them are mad, passionately in love with these cars as they get to work on them. It's not just for the camera. They truly love what they get to do with these cars. God too gets to do the rescue, but is equally, if not more passionate about the restoration. He is equally as passionate about bringing back to life that which is no longer fit for purpose, even if what remains is a fragment of its former glory. God needs people who will shine brighter than the very stars themselves when he gets to be glorified amongst them. He needs a people who will not falter at the first hurdle of hardship or temptation, who will faithfully live by his word and his law and utterly depend on his hand for provision. He needs a wineskin fit to carry and pass on his glory to the next generation and beyond. He needs to know that as they take their first steps into the promised land, that before they get to swim in the ocean of his good gifts, they are totally and utterly won over to him. He needs to have them exposed to their idols and tear down their altars so they can give them over to a desert grave. A work, of course, that is continued in us today. One of the most heartbreaking moments of the Old Testament has to be the moment in Deuteronomy where God tells Moses that he will not be crossing the Jordan with his people. This father of the nation who has been with them through so much, through all their failures and triumphs, their joys and their grumblings, who has anguished over them and celebrated with them, this mighty pillar of God's purposes will not lead them into this land. The task instead will go to Joshua. As Moses stood with his back to the desert, his eyes soothed by the fertile land that stretched out before him, he knew that this was not a time for bitterness because Moses understood the aching heart of God for his people. So instead of a self-indulgent rant, he turned towards his child like any other father would and said, remember the wilderness. 
The only way you will survive and prosper in this new land is if you remember this place and the great work of restoration your heavenly Father has done here. Moses understood the aching heart of God for his people. He needed to know that they would be all right, that they would be able to stay faithful and swim well in the ocean of God's good things. Where he also knew temptation could still lurk and stalk them. Hence, he gets to speak these words over them in Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, titled, Remember the Lord your God. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you known that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out and you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of those hills you dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. I know we're meant to be in the book of Exodus right now, but the wilderness, of course, goes beyond the book of Exodus and through into the final chapters of Deuteronomy. Here we find a, a crossroads moment where we get to reflect on what the God of Israel has done, why he's done it, what he's still yet to do in his people and where he wants to take them from here. I don't know about you, but this in this season of upheaval we've all been through and, and are still, of course, very much in the middle of, has left me with a growing sense that we are to expect a similar crossroads, a threshold moment of opportunity that we cannot miss and must ready ourselves for. We have a game we love to play in our house called Boggle. 
some of you may know it. It's a game where a number of lettered dice are shaken up in a container and allowed then to fall into a square tray to form a letter grid where you're meant to make as many words as you can in one minute from the jumbled letters. In a way, Israel's time in Egypt was much like this tray of letters that had long since been shaken up. They've been staring down at the same words for 400 years. Captivity, slavery, hardship, submission, groaning, hopelessness, hunger and sin. Words that have become so familiar and safe, they knew no other way to live. These words have become their identity. But as God gathered them up, took them off into the wilderness workshop, he got to shake their tray of life again. What landed back down were new words like obedience, loyalty, dependence, faithfulness, reliance, purity, fellowship, worship, and humility. Words that were going to demand so much more of them. In a way, it feels as if our tray of life has been shaken up these past 10 months, doesn't it? And I wonder what new words we are staring down at and are being challenged with right now. One of the words we've used many times already in this this series and seems quite unique to the book of Exodus is the word grumbling. And much of Israel's grumbling was centered around these new words they were now being asked to live by. Extraordinarily, they would look down at them and still long for the toxic words of their old life, as if slavery and all the anger and bitterness associated with it was somehow all they knew. Freedom uh, had become a far too costly thing for them. They longed for the old life, a godless city, seemed more appealing to them than a God-filled wilderness. But God is a God of perfect persistence, of perfect patience and unending perseverance. The God of the aching heart and the eternal plan remained immovable. As Israel weaved, staggered, faltered, and failed their way through the wilderness workshop. As the unteachable and unrescuable among them fell away and became lost to the desert, their faithful and unswervable sovereign God took not one step to the left or the right of his purposes. He was going to lead them into the workshop. However painful it was going to be, however surgical its restoration processes were going to be. He was going to have them become a glorious new nation defined only by his presence. I guess I've been 
guilty in the past, and I'm sure I'm not alone with this, of reading the wilderness story as a one of a kind of harsh discipline of giving and withholding, of threats and commands, of a present yet distant God who at times seems somewhat ruthless and dispassionate. How very wrong I have been. If you were to sum up God's purpose for the wilderness, both then and now, into one line of scripture, it would have to be this one. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives instead by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses understood the aching heart of God. He understood that it was going to take more than God's provision to carry them over the Jordan and prosper. More than their heavenly father's ocean of good things. The water, the bread, the milk, the honey, even the land itself. He needed to know that their hearts and their souls were forever lost to him and him alone, that their lives were to be so bound up in him for their survival, that every word he spoke would be manna itself. If we embrace it, if we're prepared to be led the long way round with the God of goodness, the Wilderness Workshop will get to do two very significant things within us. Firstly, it will expose what really beats in these chests of ours like nothing else will, both the good stuff and the not so good. If you think about it, in the desert, there are very few places to hide. Our true desires, our, our idols, our preoccupations, our true loves, are laid bare beneath the burning sun. In God's kindness, in his wilderness workshop, he helps put our idols in plain view so that we might acknowledge them, hate them, and give them a desert grave. Secondly, we learn very fast to cultivate something that is essential to a living faith with him, desperation. Now, although the world has allowed this world to be relegated into vocabulary that's perhaps more uh, comfortable with words like failure, hopelessness, and panic, in the kingdom of God, this word is highly prized. Desperation positions us perfectly for God to do his finest work in us. Let me tell you, we don't need a crisis in our lives to be desperate for the God of all good things. We don't have to be in our last resort state of being before we collapse at his feet with all our options spent. He wants us desperate for him 
with a continual ache in our hearts that matches his. He's a God whose heart aches for us daily, hourly, who calls us into the only place he knows that he will get to do his best work in us. The wilderness is not his last resort for us, but his first. It's where he rescues us to, not from. And it's a restoration project that started in a garden, flowed like a river through a desert and ended on a cross. And we now get to live in the glorious consequences of such a perfect work of love. I'm going to leave you with Jess, who's going to speak over you one of the most beautiful love letters ever written. It's tucked away in the second chapter of Hosea. And what's most remarkable about, about it is that despite being nearly 700 years on from our passage in Deuteronomy, God's aching heart beats on stronger and faster than ever before, despite abandoning him yet again for other gods and as wretched as ever, he pours out these words over them. He goes again for his people who he just cannot let go. Let's take uh, a few moments just to receive these amazing words. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the same time, when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in the day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land.
and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God.